Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with mo uh, modern days unipolarity is precisely like that. The West is leading Ukraine down the Primrose Path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. I'd like to start by offering just a very brief background. Uh, the United States over the last 30 or so years has followed what is generally referred to as a neoconservative or perhaps liberal interventionist or liberal universalist uh, foreign policy strategy. However, with the emergence of uh, great power politics again to the diplomatic stage, international relations is taking on uh, a, a different view essentially and the realist school of foreign policy is becoming uh, far more prevalent or certainly outside the US foreign policy establishment. Now tonight we have um, two very interesting guests plus Philip and I to discuss whether the United States can ever transfer to being a, a realist great power as opposed to a liberal great power. First, we have Elbridge Colby, who uh, was involved, I believe, the lead architect of writing uh, the 2018 uh, US uh, defense and security strategy. He has since co-founded and is Institute, which seeks to develop policies to help the United States uh, cope and prosper in a world of uh, great power competition. Uh, Mr. Colby uh, also wrote a book called The Strategy of Denial, which looked to form a, a US policy, foreign policy focused on China, which Mr. Colby views as the greatest strategic rival of the United States. Uh, since then, and his uh, energetic and uh, entertaining and informative um, speaking uh, events and almost a tour, I suppose. Uh, Mr. Colby's become one of those uh, public intellectuals who I think has um, kind of, uh, you know, transferred into the mainstream, if you like. Um, uh, Malcolm Keyune, and I'm very sorry if I'm mispronouncing that surname, but uh, we've spoken only online and uh, I'm not altogether certain, but uh, Malcolm is a uh, journalist. He writes for American Affairs, Unheard, and Compact magazine. And quite recently, he wrote what I think was an absolutely brilliant essay uh, about Elbridge Colby's book, The Strategy of Denial. It was very praiseworthy of that book. It, it, it really said it was a, a superb effort. But ultimately, um, Malcolm viewed uh, the book as... Uh, or, or, or viewed Mr. Colby's ideas as, as not particularly relevant to the United States because, you know, the essence of the United States doesn't fit well with realism. So he, we're going to debate this subject tonight and discuss it and explore it and hopefully get some new perspectives on this matter. I think first I would like to ask um, 
both uh, Elbridge Colby and uh, Malcolm Keune to just outline their views very briefly. And then we can go ahead and start examining them and developing them and, uh, you know, maybe trying to get some uh, view at the end of it all. Um, Mr. Elbridge Colby, uh, I hope you can hear and everything's fine. Would you like to go first and uh, just give us a brief appraisal of your view, the kind of the stump speech of strategy of denial, if you like? Sure. Well, thank you, uh, Collingwood. And how should I refer to you? Uh, speaking of, uh, I don't think we've had the pleasure of speaking before. So how should I refer? Oh, well, okay. Well, I'll take the liberty of calling you Collingwood. And, and then um, it's, it's great to be on here. I'm very, very pleased to be on uh, with, with you, uh, but also with, with Malcolm uh, as well, if I can uh, call you by your first name, Malcolm, um, uh, your essay uh, in Compact, um, you know, I was very, uh, I have to say I was, I was affected by it because um, as you point out in the, uh, in the piece, uh, I'm so accustomed to having my views be be defamed and distorted, frankly. And for somebody to actually give uh, really and understand my views very, very well and give me the, a fair shake. I thought it was a fair shake. Um, and and if, if anything, be be very kind. And I, I appreciate that. But but more than anything, just give it an honest point of view, as, as you pointed out in the essay. Um, you know, there's <laughs> uh, dozens of, of hours of free free viewing and audio of me on on the internet. So, you know, for those who want to see, you can see what I actually think. And yet, made a very um, telling and I would say compelling critique of my of my argument. Um, at its sort of, uh, you know, I was I was looking over the piece again. Um, at its sort of, the, if you will, the chink in the armor, which is almost like its starting point, um, and saying that. You know, it's not the internal coherence of my argument that is is primary vulnerability, and I'm not I'm not saying my argument is without flaws, certainly not. But uh, but that that more at at a, at a more basic level, um, you know, it's it's ill suited for for the United States. I, you know, I think I responded on on Twitter for those who didn't see the response. You know, what I'll say is I think um, the most uh, the, the part of your argument that I, I continue to, to wrestle with is whether you may be right about the contemporary and future United States, which is to say, I'm not convinced that the United States has never been a realist country. I, I think if you ask the Mexicans or some of the other countries that we've uh, dealt with over the centuries, I was in the Philippines last month. The United States historically has been very realist at times. I mean, not necessarily more, you know, uh, uh, sort of um, than than other you know countries in a difficult in the difficult international environment. But I think if you look at American history, you know particularly before the collapse of the Soviet Union, even during the Cold War, it was a pretty you know realistic foreign policy of containment that obviously had a rhetorical overlay and a certain amount of genuine uh, focus on the ideological element. But but over over the you know over the grand the focus on even isolationism in, in the 19th century was, you know, if you go back to Washington's uh, farewell address or the Federalist Papers, a lot of that was motivated by a sense the United States should focus on internal development and couldn't affect the European balance of power anyway. Uh, certainly people like Teddy Roosevelt, um, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, etc. I think what I'm really wrestling with and maybe where we can discuss is has, has the self-conception of the United States changed in some way that makes adopting that policy um, uh, 
untenable. And this is where it connects, if I admit my own uh, you know, uh, self-doubt or self-criticism a little bit, this is where it connects with some of the debates about what, what the American nation is. And, and obviously those debates have become far more um, uh, intense and I would say uh, you know, pretty, pretty nasty. And is it possible for a country that's going through these kinds of debates and has this kind of self-conception and sees a future, um, is it possible for that, that country to pursue a policy of enlightened self-interest based on Republican principles as laid out in the Federalist Papers or by you know, Abraham Lincoln or Teddy Roosevelt? Or is that just a, 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 has that become um, a kind of an archaic model? I, I believe the answer is yes. But I, um, I think it's a, it's, it's a very significant challenge and one where my arguments, which tend to focus on strategic logic and you know, history and what the Chinese are up to and state behavior are not uh, perfectly or not, not you know, uh, symmetrically um, uh, uh, sort of um, uh, presented to, to rebut that argument. It's, it's one that I, I need to, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I appreciate the challenge because I think it's a very uh, important issue and one that, that needs to be discussed. So maybe with that, Collingwood, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send it back to you and, and look forward to hearing from Malcolm. Well, Malcolm, um, I guess Elbridge has basically said that he does believe the U.S. can be a realist country or it can pursue a realist foreign policy, um, despite some of the, um, you know, the, the domestic political impediments that we might see. Um, why don't you outline your view on that? All right, thanks. Um, and great to be here. Uh, this was a really fun initiative. And um, it was a fun essay to write as well. Like it took, it took a bit of time, but I think the result actually sort of pointed toward a real issue that's not just relevant for, for you Americans, but also here in Europe as well, given the, um, um, you know, the geopolitical situation. Hello? Let's see. Yeah, we've got you now, Malcolm. Okay, can you, can you hear me? Sure can. Malcolm, right. I heard everything you said, so uh, yeah, I, think, okay. I think we probably, yeah. So, so the thing here is that um, both of you, both you, Collingwood and uh, Elbridge, wrote essentially on Twitter sort of, I wouldn't say rebuttals, but, you know, responses to my piece where you argued that the there's not actually a sort of either or tension between being like an ideological or even revolutionary power as the United States was at its founding and being geopolitically realist. And I, I basically fully agree with this point. Like even something like the French Republic, like the first French Republic, or, you know, like the regime in Iran, like these are still governments that under certain circumstances have been like brutally realistic. Uh, and this was in fact a huge tension point um, in the conquered territories by France during the um, revolutionary wars and the wars of the first and second coalition in Europe, where you had all of these revolutionaries going, oh man, like France, no more kings, no more taxes, no more laws. And then turns out that France is actually, you know, busy fighting a great power war against everyone else in Europe. And so uh, there's not going to be much freedom and enlightenment. There's going to be taxes and there's going to be conscription if you live in Belgium. And so, so obviously, 
I agree with you that it's theoretically possible for the United States or for any other country for that matter to pursue what we would call like colloquially sort of foreign policy realism. But the interesting question for us here tonight is whether not in theory, but in practice, like the specific country, the United States in the specific period of the 2020s can actually do this or whether there are other sort of uh, factors that militate against this. And here I would argue that, um, like, obviously I'm not omniscient. I don't have all the answers. So what I'm interested in tonight is basically to present, I would say, um, two big sort of problems that we would, like anyone here who is interested in sort of steering the United States on top onto a realist path, would have to grapple with and actually have come up with solutions to. And then another problem that is more external to our political orders, but that is uh, quite worrisome all the same. So just to outline those two problems briefly, and then I'll hand it back to you. I think that um, internally to our Western states, there are what I would call the chronic problem of like, you know, an incompatibility with realism, which I kind of outlined in that essay. This was sort of the main thrust of it, which was um, that if you think about something like military recruitment, for example, military recruitment has collapsed. And even though the various services of the United States have a lot of leeway in how they twist the stats, when they report them, they do a lot of things like deferring, like taking recruits that were supposedly going into one fiscal year, shifting those recruits into another in order to sort of paper over the, the bad news here. But the news all the same is extremely bad. And so here you kind of have um, a real problem in the sense that um, you have a real problem in the sense that the, the current sort of model for the military is not actually working particularly well. And it's not working because people aren't willing to sign up. Like they don't believe in the project anymore. They don't find that the United States offers them a reason to fight. So that's sort of the internal thing. But then you have an external problem, which is all which has to do with for us to be realist in our dealings with China or Russia, for example, we have to be able to maintain a sort of realistic assessment of who the people in the Kremlin or, you know, the forbidden city or whatever, like who they actually are, how they're thinking, the capabilities of enemy nations and so on. And I think that has just collapsed in the West, to be perfectly clear. Like, I don't think it's actually possible to sell people on a realistic assessment of, say, Russian strength, military strength in Ukraine in 2023, because there are too many ideological barriers for that. Like, this, this gets tangled up in so many sort of explosive emotional political issues that if you just say, well, you know, I don't think that the ghost of Kiev is real, or I don't think that the Russians have lost 10,000 planes, like this, you cannot discuss whether the Russians have lost 10,000 tanks or planes or whatever as part of a realistic discussion. 
you can only discuss it in the context of whether you love Putin, hate freedom, and so on. And I, that's not really soil that sort of can support, I think, a realistic polity at all. And then the third issue I can leave for later if we have time for that, I think. Well, I actually think it's a pretty good start. It's it's a lot deeper of a critique, I suppose, um, of the US potential to become realist than I had initially understood, I think, from reading your essay. Uh, essentially, what you're saying, it's not so much, it's not just that the United States is perhaps, um, I, I, I want to use the word spiritually, but I don't mean in terms of people who are vaguely religious i mean in terms of the spirit of the nation the the kind of the vitality of the nation it's, it's not just that which you believe is antithetical to a policy of uh, realism as far as i understand what you're also saying is the tools are no longer there the the kind of the extremely erudite um area experts and grand strategists and the synthesis but between all them, the kind of the George Kennans and the and and and, and all of the foreign policy experts that 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 sprung up in post-war United States, and and even I guess people like Eisenhower and Kennedy and, and to a certain degree Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon as well, they just don't exist anymore, and the United States views the world much more simplistic, uh, much more simplistically but much less expertly at the same time. Would that be a fair kind of summation of what you said there, Malcolm? In some sense, yes. In, in other senses, no. Because I think the risk here is that we sort of treat this as a problem of engineering or as a problem of expertise. Like, sure, we do have a real problem in the sense that if you're a Sweden expert in China, like you work for Xi Jinping and you want to advise him on sort of the internal workings of Sweden. Like, there's no way you're going to get that post unless you speak Swedish. Like, you, people aren't going to take you seriously unless you can show that you have some sort of actual area knowledge. Uh, if you want to be a China expert in Sweden, you don't have to speak Chinese. Like, you can be a China expert, and all you do is basically read, you know, or, or listen to sort of interviews of, by Farid Sakari on CNN, like nothing personal against the guy, but like this is the level of sort of knowledge that we accept. And, and you have made fun of sort of Liz Truss, for example, for going to Russia, um, being made fun of in public for not knowing which oblasts are part of Russia since, you know, 500 years back and which are part of Ukraine and sort of lecturing the Russians in this. So we do have a problem with people like not knowing their brief, but also the problem goes much deeper in the sense that if we want to have a sort of realistic, you know, think about Europe, like the after the Napoleonic Wars, the so-called like period of the Holy Alliance, which was this attempt to put Humpty Dumpty back together. Like the French had come and broken everything. And now you sort of have had to go back to a stable political order where everyone sort of respected everyone else's rights and sort of geopolitical privacy almost. Like the architect of that, uh, Clemens von Metternich, I think he's very typical for the sort of thinking that doesn't exist anymore. So like personally, 
Metternich was an incredibly dissolute sort of amoral person, famous for having like a ton of affairs. And he's sort of representing this return to the old austere Christian moral order. Um, someone like Talleyrand in France, which was much the same, like a bishop who had never given like a sermon ever, uh, loved to play cards and so on. Like, but these people, for all their cynicism, like you couldn't actually approach Clemens von Metternich and then say, I think the Russians have so and so many army divisions and have him like freak out at you because you say that he has 20 divisions, but like this sort of, how do I put it colloquially? Like this triggers me because I don't want to think that the Russians are actually like powerful or anything. So if you think about like the discussion over the Ukraine war, you literally cannot discuss how many casualties each side has taken in any sort of, like if you actually try to say, okay, let's actually find out how many casualties Russian Ukraine has taken in a sort of rigorous sense uh, in order to serve as a basis for our realist policy projections. Like you cannot do that. You simply cannot do that. You will lose your job. You will be attacked as a Russian lover and so on. Like all of these sort of things that should be in the, in the sphere of cold, detached political analysis are now incredibly emotional. Like we cannot separate this sort of psychodrama from um, sort of realistic foreign, foreign policy assessments. And this is kind of like the big frustration that is, in, that is sort of bedeviling Elbridge Colby right now, I get the sense. Well, if I could jump in, yeah. I mean, Please. To, to your point, Malcolm, I think that's very astute. I just have put out a tweet, um, basically, in conf like I would say befuddlement at the, like I read all of these um, tweets about sort of celebra celebratory mood, even euphoria about Sweden and Finland entering the alliance. And it's just, like, I actually, I mean, at a sort of, I know a lot of these people, so I get it instinctively why this is happening. But rationally, it doesn't make sense to me because it's a military alliance. Like, we're not at war. Sweden and Finland were already democratic countries. So I, it's actually, in my model, it is deeply perplexing why that is. I, I'm, I'm, as you were talking and thinking back, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I think the external element that you're just talking about is more of a, der a derivative of the internal one, which seems to me to be the deeper issue. And I will say, I mean, living in Washington stuff and this, you know, obviously the strategic world has declined more in, in Europe uh, for some good reasons. I, you know, there's still a lot of people who are, you know, including who are more in the kind of quote unquote established point of view or the, you know, legacy point of view who are deeply knowledgeable and dealing with reality and so forth. So I'm, I'm, you know, if you go back in the cold war, there are a lot of people who are carried away, you know, McCarthy era and so forth uh, to put it charitably. So I, that part I'm less, I think it's more, I, I'm going back to the year essay and I'd say, I'm just kind of the thing that I was remembering the, the part, part you made about the Qing empire. And then I was reading, if I could just read a little bit, it says, you say the life cycle of states, the human passions, 
that sustain or overthrow them, these things are all beyond the ken of the theory of realism. Um, that, you know, France you keep referring to, and I think rightly is a perfect example. Like if you were interpreting France using the foreign policy realism in 1787, would you have been ready for what happened and the convulsions and the aggressiveness of revolutionary and Napoleonic France? You know, I think in fairness, it, you know, I mean, in the same way that many realists were surprised, as you point out, by the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, in some sense, I'd say realism has turned out relatively well as a predictive pattern because Russia is continuing to behave in a kind of quasi-imperialistic way or, you know, just using the term kind of empirically rather than with a normative connotation. But what, what, it, what it says to me, and, and this gets at some of the implicit political elements in what I'm arguing for, which gets, I mean, to me, I was very struck by an essay by the political uh, scientist, uh, I don't like that term, but James Kurth. He wrote something for uh, Foreign Policy Research Institute about 10 years ago, and he, he contrasted what he called, I think it was um, liberal nationalism, or maybe it was conservative nationalism, with transnationalism. I mean, there's some of these people out there, and uh, some of this stuff I think is kind of hackery, but like who say that the big divide is between internationalism and isolationism in the American debate. And I think that's kind of ridiculous because the number of actual isolationists is vanishingly small. And internationalism is not something you can really define. I don't know what that means. You know, I mean, how involved we should be in the international sphere to me is like a derivative of a higher level you know, view. What I think is more at the root of this, and, and, and if I were going to put it in my terms and try to kind of, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis back at Malcolm, at you, is like my debate is predicated on the idea of a certain kind of the primacy of the nation, a sort of Republican nationalism. Obviously, nationalism has a bad odor in, in certain parts of the world, in Europe and so forth. But I mean more kind of like a... Um, you know, the, 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 I mean, I think it's a basically a kind of republicanism, which is that there's a certain political entity which is sovereign and which is, you know, about the public good of the citizenry. Like that is the idea of republican. Maybe we call it republicanism rather than nationalism. And that that is and, and you know, th of course, that doesn't require that you be rapacious or uh, cruel towards towards others. But you're, you know, basically the model is, is a kind of conservative is sort of always contextual. So I'm hesitant to use that term here. But it's basically, you know, my, my arguments, Malcolm, as you point out in the essay, like they're premised on the idea that the, 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 the republic, that the citizens of the republic, their security, their freedoms and their prosperity is the is the ultimate touchstone and the sort of the arbiter or, or the measure by which, um, or, you know, the rule by which any foreign policy should be measured. But actually what's happening, and I think the Sweden and Finland thing, what's actually going on is that the other side is more like the French revolutionaries, which is progressive transnationalism. And that maybe the idea to a lot of these people is that NATO is the, I mean, I was reading and I was thinking to myself, what would be, why would people be so excited about that? Maybe they see NATO as a way station on something towards a progressive trans, and you know, obviously the European Union has features of this, although a realist would see the European Union in different terms, but in the self-conception of the progressive and, 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 and the sort of the quote-unquote centrist or right people who are essentially you know, bought into that hegemonic international sort of intellectual theory, you know, then, then, then the argument about 
national interest and the Republican wheel is not really where it's at, if you put it kind of bluntly. Like we're, we're um, that, that argument is kind of missing the major point, which is through foreign policy to get to kind of the end of history. I mean, Fukuyama, I was, uh, you know, I was a big fan of Fukuyama in past years, and I had always defended his arguments against what I thought were kind of cheap critiques. But Fukuyama, since the Ukraine war, has seemed to like revert to almost a caricature. And now there, there's a lot of people who are like, this is, you know, I mean, you look in the Atlantic magazine, they're saying this is where the future of freedom and democracy are going to be fought. To me, that's like risible. Not, I mean, not the, 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 the topic of what's happening is obviously not laughable at all. It's tragic. But the notion that freedom and democracy are at, are at issue there is obviously not the case. But they seem to actually think it is in, 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 in some way. And I think if I'm taking the, what I see as the most powerful counterpoint to your argument is that, is that and let, let me develop it one, one, one level further as I'm thinking about it, is that it's inherently a political and um, not partisan, but it's, it's a, a very, even the logic itself of realism is not something that can exist above the political fray, but is itself political and contested, very much so, A, and then, but then what I would say about that in, in pushing back on your assessment internally, Malcolm, is I do see realism getting more traction again. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, realism was like complete, like no, I mean, I remember being a young kind of Republican foreign policy type and nobody self-identified as a realist. They would all uh, arm's length it. Now it's, it's still not great, but it's definitely improving. And, and in a sense, I feel that the, and this is obviously, you know, I can't demonstrate this, but I feel that the, the political momentum on the right, although also there are echoes of it in some parts of, of the left, particularly kind of the worker-focused left, take someone like a Ro Khanna or somebody like that, or a Matt Stoller, like there are, there's more political traction. Um, so, so anyway, maybe I'll leave it there because that, that's kind of how I'm, I'm digesting what you're saying. Yeah, uh, you brought up an, an, oh, sorry, go ahead, Collingwood. Oh, no, not at all. I was just going to bring you in, that's all. Go for it. And then uh, after you, uh, I think maybe, Philip, perhaps we can go from uh, hypothesis to antithesis and synthesis with Philip Pilkington, perhaps. Yeah, okay. So so you brought up an interesting point regarding NATO. And, and the thing about sort of Swedish NATO accession is, and I don't want to sort of get too lost in the weeds here, uh, but my sense is similar to yours in that, like, in a sort of strictly military logic, the, the military slash realist calculus cannot really explain why NATO accession is important, either for the Swedes or for the Americans. In terms of the Swedes, the entire Swedish armed forces at this point are significantly, significantly inferior in terms of equipment and personnel like the entirety of the armed forces compared to what we had with just the task of guarding Arlanda airport during the cold war. Um, so we've gone from, I don't know how many artillery tubes we had guarding Arlanda airport, like 40, 50, 70. 
at this point, we're down to 20 artillery tubes over the entire army. And I don't even know if we still have 20 howitzers over the entire country because a lot of them have gone to Ukraine. Um, so there's no sort of rational military logic here. And in fact, people calling for, you know, kicking Turkey out of NATO because like who would want a country like NATO? Oh, sorry, a country like Turkey inside a military alliance like NATO. Like, I mean, what do they bring to the table exactly militarily? It's a big question mark, right? Um, but you also see countries like Ireland now wanting to join NATO, which is even more sort of curiously ideological. Like Ireland wasn't particularly concerned about an invasion from the Soviet Union during the Cold War for some reason. And at that point, you know, the people in Moscow at least had, in theory, a reason to invade Ireland, which was to spread the glorious truth of communism. Like when you just have a sort of Russian nation state, civilization state, what exactly is Ireland worried about? Or is it really um, eager to send a bunch of Ireland sons and daughters to die in some marsh in eastern Ukraine? I don't think so. I think that this is so tied up in, in some sort of, as you put it, like liberal international progressivism. But the problem here is just that if we think about like what this spells out for the internal political situation in the United States, there's been a lot of mockery uh, aimed at sort of the Democrats for being out of touch. So you had this famous army commercial where it's like a, a, a black woman with natural hair talking about like a struggle for freedom. And then you have the, the even more famous one, which is like a white woman who is the o operator of a Patriot uh, missile battery. And there's this sort of animated scene where her two mothers are marching for, you know, um, LGBTQ plus rights. And she narrates this by saying that, like, she's always fought for justice. And so that's why she, uh, you know, went from marching in pride parades to operating a Patriot missile battery. And people mock this. And the more time goes on, the more I sort of think, like, why are you mocking this? Because as you rightly pointed out, Colby, like the U.S. was founded on a very sort of classical idea of republicanism. But the actual political economy of the United States today don't really support it. In terms of if we compare just how the U.S. functions economically and politically compared to the vision of the founding fathers, uh, what the U.S. is today is in some ways like the, the real nightmare of the founding fathers. Like you have these permanent standing armies, you have 800 or 700 military bases all around the world uh, eating up a lot of sort of resources and uh, something that it's very hard, obviously, for, for the states to control. And as time goes on, you see this dynamic to sort of simplify things, which the um, British historian Arnold Toynbee called um, the, the sort of creation of an American, quote, internal proletariat. And this is not a Marxist term. The internal proletariat in, in the Toynbee sense of the world is simply people living inside of an empire who no longer derive any sort of direct benefit from it and no longer identify with it. 
And this is partly due to like changing sort of, how do I put it? Like life circumstances, changing, a changing basis of the American economy from production to essentially like almost living of monetary rents and transfer payments, uh, living off of imperial tribute from the rest of the world. In that transition, a lot of people have, have really lost out hugely. And those people used to be the backbone of the United States military. And so I think that for a lot of this stuff, like a lot of this weird ideological stuff, a lot of it is probably just a sort of attempt at making, you know, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. If you're going to be running an international empire that no longer produces internally, but instead sort of lives off of imperial tribute and then tries to distribute that imperial tribute internally, which the United States is increasingly doing, and like, you know, giving people you know, food stamps, the dole, whatever, like all these kinds of um, transfer payments to make the population of the imperial city, like, you know, less likely to burn everything down. Like the less, the more of that economy you have, the farther away you move from a situation where you can actually make people enthusiastic talking about like the Republican America. And the more you have to, create a new sort of imperial creed. And I think that this is, you know, in fits and starts, what people are trying to do all over the West. They're trying to create a new sort of ideological imperial creed that no longer sort of requires any sort of economic independence or, you know, a family or anything like that. It just requires you to be a part of like a favored identity group in order to receive transfer payments. And it's very hard to see how the quote unquote like conservative, the right wing, like there's a lot of attacks on trying to recruit like, you know, women to operate Patriot batteries who have like two um, lesbian parents or moms. But I don't really think that the alternative, which is just to say, Let's pretend America is still the America of the 1970s. Please send your sons and daughters to sign up for the meat grinder. I don't think that's a realistic alternative at all, unless you actually do go back to the American political economy of the 1970s. Um, Philip Pilkington, do you have anything to say to this? And then we'll go back to uh, Elbridge Colby. Yeah, I kind of kind of feel like I should pick up on the economy thing, but I was actually thinking of something slightly different. I I think that's kind of the underlying problem. I remember a a um a film, a very famous documentary film in Britain just after the uh I think it was after the war on terror, it could have been after the Iraq war. It was by a filmmaker called Adam Curtis and um it was called The Power of Nightmares. And he argued that the neoconservative architects of the war on terror slash the Iraq war were inspired by kind of um, Straussian uh, philosophy and that the, the war was a unifying noble lie for the entire country. Um, slightly frustrating for those of us who've actually read poor Leo Strauss. It was a pretty simplification of his thinking. But, I mean, there was some truth to it, I guess. Um, I think what Malcolm is talking about is that. Um, 
I think probably there was a secondary component to that rallying flag, as it were, when, you know, Wolfowitz and so on were putting together projects for a new American century. But today, as Malcolm's saying, things are a lot more fragmented. The U.S. is a lot more fragmented, and not just the U.S., Europe as well. The U.S. and Europe are far more fragmented today than they were in the mid-2000s. Um, I mean, the mid-2000s weren't, you know, the glory days of the mid-90s, maybe, but they, they were, the place was a lot less fragmented. And I do, I do sense that, too, that, that it's not so much that this new ideology or whatever it is that Malcolm's calling it is actually, like, purposefully thought of or thought through. It's kind of a reaction to internal divisions or something like that. That really kind of stands out and sounds realistic to me and, and kind of explains some of the, the dynamics that we see. And of course, if that's what it is, maybe we're the French revolutionaries in a sense, not in the sense that we're, we're going crazy and invading you know, the whole world to spread uh, French Republican values, but in the sense that we're, we're projecting outwards for internal unity. That does feel like it has something to it. I just add to that something that really struck me over the past year, especially in the first six months of the war, which very much so speaks to, I think, the first thing that Malcolm said about a very kind of censorious environment, very fact-free environment. Um, and as Elbridge says, this isn't as bad in the US. And having quite a few friends in the US, I can attest to that. It is not as bad in the US as it is here in Europe, especially in the UK where I am. But... Um, Another interesting phenomenon happened at the start of the war, and I think it's very much so tied to this ideological aspect. It's at the beginning of the war, we were all told that we were going to have this enormous info war victory, an information warfare victory. This was all over the newspapers constantly. And I kind of watched it and I said, okay, maybe, maybe we will. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe that's the thing. Maybe it's like with social media and everything now, maybe that's really powerful. Maybe that can do something. But as time went on, it became increasingly clear that whatever this thing was, this information war or whatever, wasn't targeted at the adversary, which is what you usually do with an information war, as far as I understand it. But it was targeted internally. And again, it was like, it was as if it was trying to maintain an internal coherence that was lacking, rather than what I would imagine an information war is supposed to do, is, is disrupt you know, the other population and make them all confused and make them think they're losing and that their leaders are terrible and are cannibals or whatever. But that didn't happen. Again, it became very internally focused. So I'd almost try and connect those two comments that, that Malcolm made, that, that the ideological unity that we seem to find in these things was also, <laughs> seems to me, to be very much so related to this very fact-free environment that we're in at the moment. Um, at least the general public is anyway. Maybe decision makers are, are not as much in this environment. Yeah, Bridge here, if I just build on that, I think it's an excellent point. And I mean, it's actually, it helps to explain why, I mean, one of the things that I, again, am kind of befuddled is, I mean, we see it with the Vilnius Summit now, is there's all this sort of celebration also about allied unity. And it, it, I mean, speaking as a Christian, a believing Christian, um, it has features of it's like a, a an ecumenical conference, like it, you know, because to me, I'm thinking, well, the NATO summit, like the Germans haven't actually followed through on their commitment, and the British talk a big game, but they have, you know, their military seems to be in really bad shape, and so from a again from a military alliance point of view, 
where it's a, a coalition uh, or an you know, alliance of nation states that are seeking to optimize their security, things are not good. <laughs> They're not good. And the war looks likely to go on. But if it's, if it's like an ecumenical conference in which the show of common uh, fidelity is actually the point, then it actually makes much more sense. And I mean, that's sort of, um, I mean, what, what I'm, what I'm, what it says to me is like, I mean, because to go back again to Malcolm's key point, it's um, saying that each country should be able to, I mean, my argument is that like, you know, my sort of tagline is like, well, this, my argument should be accessible to Republicans or, and, and Democrats in the United States because um, we all should share the belief that we should work out our, you know, uh, common future on our own terms, that we would be able to resolve it, you know, through debate and through our own measures as messy as they are. But, you know, the example I like to use is like the social media companies, um, you know, all Americans should want to figure out how we're going to govern the social media companies and their impact on free speech and monopoly, et cetera, on our own terms. But actually, I don't think that's necessarily true. And if we think, you know, Philip, to your point about the whole misinformation, disinformation kind of, which I just tend to ignore because I think a lot of it is so absurd, if not actively harmful, but it's a huge feature. I mean, it's sort of, you know, I mean, I, I guess if I put if I put my finger on it, a lot of this has the quality like the French revolutionaries of a secular religion that is seeking to expand and deepen cohesion, control, et cetera. And so my arguments implicitly in ways that I don't necessarily tub thump on, uh, but I think, I think your critique Malcolm brings out is that like, these are, these are deeply contested political claims today. If you made this, if if I was making this, what I'm what my argument. If I made them, if I made my arguments in the 1960 election between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon, people would be like, "What you're saying is obvious. Tell us something we don't know. That that's boring." But today, it's a deeply contested claim, and I think that's um, that's something. Um, I mean, I. <laughs> I guess what I would say in, in response is I don't think that the other point of view is actually working or has legs. What I think realism would ultimately say, realism's response to that is not confusion. It's that international politics will continue to operate. There are diverging interests across even this transatlantic security community or political community as, the, as this sort of progressive group self-conceives it, that are going to, you know, even if there's this moment of, you know, the optics of Biden and Sunak and all these people and Schultz getting together, actually realism will explain that in the way that realism ultimately explained the, um, how France ended up and how Europe ended up after the revolution, how, how even the Soviet Union and now Russia uh, behaved. But it's but in the day year on year, it's not necessarily very predictive. But over time, I think these forces and the need to have autonomous political units that are more directly accountable to their populations is going to is going to play out. But that, in a sense, I think as at the common critique of realism is it's just as much normative as it is a positive 
uh, assessment. And I think, uh, you know, to me, that's that maybe that's one of the kind of key elements of your of your critique here. I suppose uh, I started this, I came into this uh, conversation expecting to end up agreeing with uh, Elbridge Colby. I feel less and less certain now. I suppose one of the points that I would make, I, I made this in a private chat with um, Malcolm uh, yesterday, I believe, is that in the mid-1970s, the United States was um, racked with um, social unrest it was politically extremely messy indeed. It was at the back end of being bogged down in a war in Southeast Asia in a kind of non-core interest location that had ended up being much more costly than initially thought. Uh, the US military, certainly the army and the Marine Corps was not in the best of states. And all of this ended in humiliation in, uh, in uh, Vietnam. And um, the Watergate scandal, which was a, a terrific political upheaval. There was even domestic terrorism in the United States. And, and similarly to today, many of America's inner cities really looked a mess. I wasn't around in the 1970s to know, but and certainly not in America. But, um, you know, when one sees old television programs and documentaries of the center of New York in the mid to late 70s, it, it, it doesn't look like... A, uh, a pleasant or vibrant place to be. But within literally 15 years, the United States had emerged and it bestrode the world as the undisputed superpower. I mean, in 1980, uh, Ronald Reagan won a, a, a landslide election. I think off the top of my head, he won like uh, 45 of the 50 states. Um you know, you had much greater political unity. The domestic issues died down. Uh, later, there was later in the eighties, there was something of a renewal of the inner city areas. Uh, financially, America got inflation under control. Stagflation, which I didn't mention, was another issue in the U.S. in the nineteen seventies, and a whole range of new weapon systems: the, the F fifteen, the F sixteen, the F eighteen, the M one. Uh, tank, uh, the you know new uh, submarines, and uh, so on and so forth. Anti-tank missiles all came online at the same time, and the US really bestrode the world at the end of this 15-year period. And <clears throat> I think America has a great deal of uh, geostrategic advantages. Uh, politically, it's having a difficult time at the moment, but um, I, you know I wouldn't put it beyond the US to find some kind of um, uh, kind of like a core which can bring a, a, a new administration to power and transform the country. I mean, maybe not revolutionize the country, but improve the country certainly for the better internally and also in terms of foreign policy. But, I mean, Philip, Malcolm, do you want to retort on that? I know you did last night in our private conversation. I mean, and then maybe Elbridge Cole can have his view on that. Uh, I mean, it seems to me like you think it's it's kind of sunk, essentially. Well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily go that far, though I'm heartened by you saying that you're becoming more and more uh, unsure of which side to support in this battle. <laughs> yeah. as, as is famously said of this uh, current ongoing counteroffensive, Collingwood, I haven't even committed 20% of my divisions yet. So uh, the best is still yet to come. But, okay, but, so but, let's, uh, let's hear some of your strategic reserves then. Bring yes. them to the front. Yes. So 
uh, and you gave me a pretty good opportunity here because to sort of circle back to what I said in my initial remarks, I basically had two major critiques I wanted to make regarding whether the West could be realistic internally, and then one secret, like a, a coup de main, uh, if we if that was actually needed later. But we've covered point number one, which is essentially that like we don't really have an ideology internally in the West. And and people are sort of searching for it. So if you think about like what you said here in terms of having, you know, Ronald Reagan come back and so on and, and just unite the country. Well, all of our attempts at creating new ideologies or, or like new deals or new takes or whatever in the West right now, there have been quite a lot of them, including, you know, famously Donald Trump. All of them have led to... I wouldn't exactly call what Donald Trump inaugurated mourning for America, if I'm being completely honest here. Um, and this is not a critique against Trump at all. I'm just saying that we can't really say that what Trump did was, you know, unite the country as a single voice, a single body around the new course. In fact, the effect of that was the opposite. Basically, more internal division, more, um, uh, you know, actually like political disintegration, if we're being frank. And so all of the alternatives, all of the new sort of uh, uh, ideologies, like the Green New Deal, whatever, um, identity politics, all of these things are acting as a powerful form of like hydrochloric acid on, on sort of political uh, stability. They're not that, we're not really seeing a comeback. Like all of the attempts at staging comebacks are actually just leading to further disintegration. But again, like point number two here is the one that I would say is the really central point of the critique, which ties into what I hinted at earlier, which is, there is something going on right now in, in our conflicts, which means that we are we have some sort of mental blocker, like some science fiction neural chip or whatever implanted in our brains that give us like very powerful electric signals when we start doing unauthorized thinking. So again, a very basic point of that is just that something like how many casualties Ukraine has taken in this conflict. Like that should be at the zero level of, like this should just be on Wikipedia. Like everyone should be aware of these figures, especially outside of Ukraine, because this is such a basic point of making informed decisions. Like we can't be psyoping ourselves and then expect to make sort of realistic policy assessments. That's, that's just a contradiction in terms. But I do have an actual sort of theory for why this is the case. And I'd like to sort of expand on that for a bit. There is a book called uh, War Without Mercy, Race and Power in the Pacific War by the, I think, American historian John Dower, where he basically lays out the not often commented on history of sort of like what a huge part like racial stereotypes played in, in the uh, Pacific War especially during World War II. Though, in some ways, like, those stereotypes made, played a very similar role for Nazi Germany regarding, like, their Operation Barbarossa. 
And I think that like the ungenerous reading of someone like John Dower is that he's basically trying to, um, uh, you know, perpetuate American victim culture and so on. Like, you know, white, pe- white people are bad. But the problem is that this book was written in 1987, 1987, I think. So like this was before identity politics was a thing. And his basic point, if I'm, if I can simplify it here uh, brutally, is that if you're thinking about something like uh, Britain, the Britain, Britain's position in Asia on the eve of World War II, like the British were incredibly open about their very sort of belittling racial stereotypes about the Japanese. One particular stereotype was that like the Japanese had such, you know, slanted eyes that like they couldn't actually operate a torpedo bomber because their slanted eyes would make them, you know, miscalculate when to drop the the torpedoes. So like they couldn't actually sink warships. They were biologically defective. Uh, they they had some other theories as well. Like you know, the Japanese alphabet is very hard to learn. There's like three different uh, languages you need to learn. So like Japanese brains are fundamentally sort of underpowered because they're forced to contain so much information. There's not enough information space left in the brain to design, you know, a good airplane. All of this proved to be wrong. But here's the thing. Making sort of like military decision, being a realist in the vein of Elbridge Colby, is something similar to budgeting. Like there's a very similar mechanism. You do have to plan in advance. You have to make, especially in a political system as contentious as that of the United States right now, you have to make very severe sort of choices to prioritize something, even though some people would say that we can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. I know Colby loves that phrase. That's that aside, like you always have to choose between do we prioritize this, do we prioritize that? And this is sort of the drum that Colby has been banging on for you know several years. Uh, Let me yeah, can I can I comment on yeah. that? Because yeah, if, if you don't mind, I just interject. Um I, I think we should be I, I get what you're saying, Malcolm, and I can't speak to the the sort of as, as obviously as astutely as you can and as with as much knowledge to the discussion, say, in Europe about particularly the public discussion. I do think we should differentiate between or, or just be a little more specific. So, so I mean, there's obviously a very vocal, you know, I mentioned Fukuyama, but, but that kind of, you know, the Mike McFall sort of type that are very vocal and have a big bullhorn. Actually, the, the, the counterpoint to my argument from the administration that I hear um, and from many Republicans um, who have a similar but slightly different view is um, it's not fantastical. Like they're not they're not operating in a sort of fantastical world. I, I, I think it's imprudent. I think their calculations are off. I think it's too risky, et cetera. But they would say, look. Um, yes, China is a threat, but the best way to deal with it is, you know, more economic than military or yes, China is a threat and it's military, but we have some time or we actually can do both because it's an air and sea war versus a ground war, which I described. Yeah. But, but, and, and, um, and, or, you know, we, we can sequence, we can, we can tie up sufficiently the Ukraine situation 
and shift over. Um, so, so it's not, um, it's not that, uh, it's not that people are completely operating. And, and this, you know, I mean, look, this is in a sense, if we use the imperial model again, as a kind of a, a sort of empirical or positive description rather than normative one, you know, if Washington is the imperial capital in a sense, and a lot of the European cities, to your point about the Swedish army have been sort of, they, they've lost the feel for because they're not part of the central decision making. Obviously, there is, but they they've been sort of um, there's less of a strategic culture in a lot of these places, also because of the 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 lack of a military threat in the post Cold War period and so forth. But I, I mean, I, I think we would want to kind of narrow the you know what what it is that because I, I I actually think in in Washington there are people who are definitely. I mean, our government is talking about the number of casualties the Russians and, and even the Ukrainians are having. Some of it is not advertised. And this administration is especially uh, sensitive to like elite blobby, you know, kind of Munich Security Conference Davos kind of perceptions. But they, there is a huge apparatus that is dealing and people have huge debates within it. Um, but I don't I don't think we should. Um, yeah. Uh, could I just finish? Yeah, like the. Sure point here so so there's no misconception here because um i think that what you say here that there's no no reliance on like fantastical um like points i was actually not making the point that like the united states is becoming racist or whatever uh i'm merely pointing out that like if in the context of someone like you know hitler invading the soviet union the only way for the operational and strategic math to make sense was essentially to mobilize a lot of, um, you know, assumptions about, you know, you kick, you kick the door in and the whole rotten building falls apart. Because if you don't assume that about the Soviet Union, if you say, oh, well, you know, these people are going to fight until the last man, they're going to be like almost as smart as us, uh, but they have this insane strategic depth that we can't match. Like there's no way to make the war make sense. And in the same way for the British in Asia, on the eve of World War II, on the eve of the, like the Japanese attacking Singapore and so on, the British position was incredibly weak. And so you have the British talking about, you know, the, you know, the, the slant, the Japanese eyes that would give you an advantage whenever, you know, there's some sort of like air attack because if you say, well, I think the Japanese are basically just as competent as the British, but just to be safe, let's assume they're 5% more competent than us and they're going to attack us. And they have so and so many divisions, so, much, so and so many carriers. How many do we have? Like, if you have to put the math, the budget in terms of military planning in, you know, 1949 in those terms, there's no way to make the math make sense. And so I think that for various reasons in the West, we have started to incorporate ideas uh, that are very reminiscent of like the, the sort of pre-World War and during World War II. Like the Japanese did this too regarding the Americans. Like the Americans are just sort of uncultured barbarians yeah, okay, maybe they can twist some iron to make something that looks like a Japanese battleship, but like, you know, these people have no naval tradition. Like, they're, they're just monkeys. Like, how could 
the Americans hope to match us even if they have more ships. And again, you're reliant on those sort of narratives, not just for powerful emotional reasons, because war brings out powerful emotions, but also in order to have like the basic underlying assumptions of your foreign policy make sense. And we saw this in practice with Russia. Um, you know, when the war started, I basically wrote a public comment saying like, okay, we, we on the side of the good guys here, we on the side of the angels in the West. Like, we, we can't keep going on like this. The Russians are a serious opponent. Like, they're not just gas station attendants. They have a serious army, which is, you know, actually pretty ruthless and actually pretty scary. We need to wake up and treat this conflict not as a walk in the park. And I think that, like, if I had just said, you know, I love Putin, I love Russia, I hope they win, I hope they nuke us, I think that would have been better for my career, to be perfectly honest. Because the point of saying, like, we can't really start talking about slanted Mongol eyes, like people were saying, like, the Russians are just Mongols in Sweden. Like, if you said, take these people seriously, you basically, um, you kick the hornet's nest. And so to sort of really drive home what point two of my critique is, I think that at this point in our budget, in terms of like military planning, we have become incredibly reliant on these short-term stereotypes. You know, the Russian, the ruble will become rubble because the Russians don't know how to make anything. Like they're just a gas station. They're also just Slavs, so they're going to freeze to death in the winter because they're too stupid to put on an overcoat. Like, these narratives are not just us being mean and racist, which all people are, all over, all across the world. Uh, this is not a moral failing. This is a failure of strategic planning, that we are forced to rely on these things to make up the difference. And you see this with China, too. Like the Chinese, and, and there was a multipolarity podcast episode on this very recently, which I recommend everyone listen to. Um, Philip and uh, Collingwood were talking about like the latest university rankings, which the Chinese started to dominate. And the response in the West to these sorts of news is, well, well, you know, the Chinese, they just steal everything. They just like, they only know how to copy things from us. And so we have become reliant on these sort of belittling stereotypes because, again, our position is increasingly looking like, you know, the British in, in Singapore. The moment we're forced to say, OK, well, let's assume these people are 5% better than us. Like the math no longer makes sense and everyone gets incredibly uncomfortable. So I think that's kind of why we no longer can afford even to make very realistic assessments, why all of these things become so hotly contested. Uh, does that make any sense to you? No, I, I, I take what you're saying. Um, unfortunately, I, I, have to, I have to jump off. Um, uh, I don't want to cut us, cut us short, but I, I, I had us uh, for an hour. But I, I mean, look, I, just in closing, I, um, look, I think what you're... I, I think the assessments that you're talking about are probably more, and that you just touched on. I mean, I find that too, in the sense that you know, I mean, 
as you know, a lot of this is human nature. People will will fit their, you know, they want something to be true, and so they'll fit their assessment, you know, kind of wishful thinking. Um, I, you know, the, the the biggest the biggest thing that I'm I'm taking from what you're saying. I mean, look, I think um, foreign policy, as I've argued before, is in the United States is a centralized enterprise. It's it's a it's a perquisite of the federal government. And the, the, the executive branch in particular in our constitutional structure and even more over time has been central concentrated in the executive branch. So, so if you look historically, you've had, I mean, all, most presidents have some features of at least pragmatism or realism, maybe not George W. Bush necessarily. But, but I mean, even guys like Clinton you, you know, or Obama, you could say, and certainly you go back to people like uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Richard Nixon and Dwight Eisenhower and so forth. Um, I think a lot of this will be um, uh, a function of, of of the election of the president. I mean, and Biden has obviously, you know, he ran in part on in reaction to President Trump and trying to restore this kind of idea. In practice, a lot of their ideas are actually not that dissimilar. I mean, the foreign policy for the middle class, the focus on China. So in some sense, there's 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 more realism than you may be allowing already in the system. Um, but for somebody to, to take a more overtly kind of Republican realism, small r Republican realism would be, I think, I think that's necessary to serve the American people's interest. But I think what I take from this conversation really and you're and you're very, very you're really thought provoking, and compelling uh, piece is that that is, you know, that that, that has deep reverberations polit- and politically, not just in some partisan sense of like, a, you know, political advertisements, but, but about, you know, the fundamental stakes of what we are arguing about at the most basic level in American society. And your point about, say, the recruiting crisis and why, the, why is there a recruiting crisis? We have had a recruiting crisis before, you know, the early years, the all-volunteer force were pretty grim. If you've seen the movie Stripes, for instance, you can see what was going on. But, you know, there's more of like a fundamental um, uh, there's more fundamental questions that are that are being debated now that were not being debated in the 70s. They may have been in latent or inchoate at that point. But today they're much more active parts of the of the debate. And I think that's sort of, um, you know, what, what I what I really take is, you know, this is a very um you know, this this gets at much more fundamental things than just re, re, <laughs> revising the foreign policy strategy of of, the, of an administration. This gets at some of the basic, uh, really basic political issues. But but with you know, with that, uh, Collingwood and, and and Malcolm and Philip, I really it was great to be able to have the conversation today. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. And and Malcolm, thank you again for your um, for your really thought provoking and compelling uh, piece and for hearing me out and actually trying, uh, I, I thought quite successfully trying to uh, uh, convey my arguments, um, uh, you know, as they're intended to be conveyed. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. I thank promise you. that once you've dropped off, I shall do my best to be devil's advocates on your behalf. Okay. Mr. <laughs> all right. Well, I wish you all a good evening for those of you who are in Europe and, uh, and, and uh, good day or wherever you may be. Uh, all the best. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, look, I want to, you know, make a point here that, um, uh, you know, from my perspective anyway, you know, it is true that a lot, as far as I can tell, of Western assessments of, say, the Ukraine war, for example, and how successful that is, 
certainly on a strategic level, but I think also in a kind of on a mechanical level as well in terms of the things like you mentioned, like the um, the rundown of materiel, some of the manpower issues and the losses that the Ukrainians have suffered. And I think there's a certain degree of that with uh, China as well, although it's not quite as front and center because they're not in the middle of a crisis at the moment and trying to manage it. And it has shocked me because at first, a, a, a bit like Philip, as he said earlier on, um, I thought that this kind of propaganda operation, if you like, and I, I don't necessarily mean that in the negative sense, but I mean in terms of, you know, the government line, government information and, the, and their kind of synthesis of um, official statements and social media and advertising and interviews to present their specific narrative. I originally thought, as Philip Pilkington said, that that would be directed at the opposition, at the Russians. But it feels increasingly like it's it, it's directed here uh, at British people, at Americans, at other Europeans. And it, it, it seems to be coming increasingly detached with reality, especially as we've moved into the counterattack. And as I say, there's a lot of that with regard to China at the moment, although it's not quite as front and center. Uh, <laughs> I guess the issue that I have is that, you know, my argument is that, uh, you know, a little bit like in the stock market where you have this kind of, you know, huge bubble where, you know, at first the price of, I don't know, subprime real estate or tulips in the Netherlands starts climbing and then you get, you know, it starts going up. So then you get speculative investors and eventually all the retail investors come in and start mortgaging their houses and betting it on subprime mortgages or tulip bulbs. Um, and eventually that all breaks down. Eventually reality imposes itself, right? And, and once reality imposes itself, you can't escape it. Now, quite often it causes cognitive dissonance, you know, as I think happens after the uh, Brexit referendum vote. There's a lot of cognitive dis dissonance and indeed the Trump vote as well. Um, there was even kind of inventions of conspiracy theories to explain electoral defeats. But eventually, reality is going to impose itself. And when it does, not only is there going to be a reckoning, but there's going to be a realization. And, you know, America is a country of, you know, 330, 340 million people. It has still some excellent universities. I hear a lot of people who are uh, highly intelligent speaking on foreign policy matters, on military matters. Uh, they're not necessarily within the current administration, but they're there. There's no reason to think that America can't produce highly intelligent, learned, uh, competent people to take control when reality imposes itself. But maybe you think that will be too late. Maybe you think that won't happen because they're weaving this kind of this web of um, half-baked ideology and narrative. I mean, can't reality impose itself? I think that that's an interesting question and, and something that I, I got hints of in, in all these closing comments uh, was essentially that maybe this isn't that fatal of a problem, as Colby said, it's a very centralized business foreign policy. So you have, you don't necessarily have to care whether um, the, you know, people on the street in Stockholm call like Russian Mongols and are, are in that sort of frenzy, because the adults will still be in the smoke filled room and so on. 
Um, maybe that's sort of bending the stick too far. Uh, well, I, but, I mean, but, just to I mean, just to be clear, I don't think that the adults are in the room at the moment. I remember Dominic Cummings, the um, yes. the man who run the ran the Brexit campaign for Leave and eventually became Boris Johnson's um, senior political advisor. He once said about the British uh, government that people see their foolish politicians. Um, they see the idiotic things that they say and do, uh, but they assume that they, they feel still quite confident and comfortable because they assume that somewhere there's a door that you're open where the really smart people are. Yes. And he said, no, there's no such door and there's no such smart people. There are one or two dotted around, but they're isolated and quite often forced out. So, so, so I don't mean to say that they're in the room now. It's just I, I don't want to kind of fall into the opposite trap of, you know, assuming that the Japanese can't fire torpedo, um, you, you know, fly torpedo bombers because of their because of their eyes. I don't want to make the opposite point and say, well, you know, just because I can see. Biden and Blinken and Sullivan and Newland controlling foreign policy in a, a, court, a sort of semi-fanatical way at the moment. I don't want to assume that the United States can't generate a, a, a you know a very smart group of people who can solve some of these issues or, or, or kind of shift a little bit America onto a different track. And I guess my view is that eventually reality has to impose itself especially when you move in from a unipolar world to a multipolar world and great power competition comes to the fore. Security concerns tend to start to reestablish themselves. Can I, can, thing, yeah. can I just make a quick point? Because I think we've got slightly bogged down, and maybe it's my fault partly, on like what's going on around the Ukraine war. Um, I think the the problems, the cognitive dissonance, and I think um, I think Malcolm agrees with me on this, and he alluded to it with the university statistics. The cognitive dissonance is about an awful lot of things, and it, it's pre-Ukraine war, and you know it, it's been going on for a long time. I think the best possible example of this is the situation with China and the U.S. dollar, right? And I'm not using this because it's a particularly interesting issue, although it is an interesting issue, but because the narrative has changed on it. The, 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 it used to be well-known 10 years ago or 15 years ago, if you worked in financial markets or you're an economist or anything, that the Chinese could dump U.S. dollar reserves if there was ever you know, anything bad happened there. Everyone knew this, and it's, it's not hard to understand. They hold a bunch of reserves. It's like not rocket science. And now everyone's forgotten about it. And yet it's such a key piece of information when making economic de uh, decisions, when making geostrategic decisions and so on. So I don't want to go on and on about it, but I, I'd just like to highlight that it feels like we're a bit post-reality in an awful lot of stuff right now. It's not just about foreign policy. And I do increasingly wonder if it has to do with social media, but that's separate speculation. Yeah, what you describe here as post-reality, like this is really what I wanted to get at with these sort of like the Pacific example, because pretty much every side of that conflict was engaging in in, in a sort of post-reality, in just in terms of having to rely on them in order to um, basically make sense of what was happening, but also to be able to present plans that could at least have, in theory, a chance of success. So 
this is this is true with turn like if you think about all of these things are sort of connected because again why are chinese universities important here in terms of you know geopolitical power conflict well for the simple reason that you know high tech is supposed to be the the trump card here so the moment you get a bunch of really smart people in china because again the chinese they know how to twist steel like the Americans once did versus the Japanese. Yeah, they can make some ships or whatever, but like they don't have the high tech. They don't have the brain power that is the American secret sauce. So the moment that this narrative starts looking shaky, you basically have to get out your roll of duct tape and you have to duct tape over the hole with some new sort of explanation that often falls into this essentially like a racial stereotype, which is, okay, well, yeah, sure, the Chinese are doing well on the rankings, but that's just because they steal from us. Because, you know, the Chinese brain is like when you download a shareware, like software program or whatever, like you need a code to unlock the the full functionality. And only Americans have that code. So like Chinese people in America, really, really smart, really good at math and everything else. But like, as long as they remain in China, like you're using the free shareware version. And obviously like this doesn't make any sense at all that, you know, if Chinese people are super smart and carrying, you know, the, the brain power wave of the future on their backs in the US, why couldn't they do it at home in China? But again, this isn't about, this isn't about like what, how Chinese people are. This is about how we in the West need them to be. And the more we grow weak, the more our laundry list of demands of how our enemies, opponents and so on need to be, like the more that list expands. I remember talking to a friend who has like a wife from Taiwan who works for the Swedish military, telling that story about, you know, the British and their belief in like slanted eyes making it impossible to fly a plane. And he's like, you know, like the epicantal fold, it doesn't really interact with vision. What were the British thinking? And that's just the wrong way to approach it. Like the problem with the British theory is not that, you know, scientifically speaking, Asian people see just as well as we do. Like that's true. But the problem with the British was that they needed some sort of theory for why their position in Singapore wasn't bloody awful. And so they kept pretending it wasn't bloody awful until, you know, the chickens came home to roost. I mean, can I kind of push back on two levels on this? The, the first is the more extreme one, and that is the racial stereotypes that we um, create, especially it seems in wartime when uh, opposition soldiers become increasingly dehumanized. Um, and the second level would be um, some of our misunderstandings of the Chinese economy and their economic model and the foundations of their present success. I think on the first one, it's, uh, I mean, I might be off beam here, but it, it, it's true that, as I said, in most wars, opposition soldiers tend to become dehumanized, you know, for two reasons. First of all, because of the, the horror of war and the, and, and the things that individual soldiers see and how they imagine the, the, you know, the opposition soldiers to be to commit such horrors. But secondly, uh, you know, on a national propagandistic level, uh, 
the the sacrifices that are needed from the population, not just in terms of the young men who have to go off and die and be, um, you know, come back to or come back disabled or mentally ruined, and the and the mothers and wives who you you know suffer the losses of their men and have to cope with the aftermath alone. Um, but also economically, the sacrifices are huge too. There, there, there are, it has a tremendously negative effect on economies, and there are huge risks involved with war. So there is a tendency to try to uh, tell stories to kind of either encourage the population to make those sacrifices. You know, the kind of the barbarous Hun, for example, they're kind of murdering babies in Belgium in 1914 or you know this is a this is a war for civilization itself I mean doesn't that sound familiar uh, you know but also they're weaker than us that you know they're not the same as us we will win it's a it's a kind of a crude way of you know getting people to go once more onto the breach dear friends I think the second point I would make is that on a higher level in terms of what is the nature of Chinese success or the foundation of Chinese success and the general economic model? It simply takes time for people to catch up. Like it, we, we in Britain have a much better understanding of what goes on in America because we can read English and we have the internet. And even before the internet, we had the news and the New York Times and we could understand what the politicians were saying. And we were interested. China is a much more mysterious place because hardly anybody speaks Mandarin or any of the other uh, many Chinese languages. How many people even know how many different Chinese languages are official languages in China? Um, we can't read their newspapers. We can't interact on their social media. We can't understand their politicians without subtitles or some other form of translation. So it simply takes time for people to catch up. You, you know, there are all sorts of kind of ways that you can learn about this, but this is quite specialist stuff for people who are interested, the average person, and even probably the average politician is not. So what I would say is, first of all, these kind of silly stories are, are, are quite often seen as, ne as necessary to encourage a population to make the sacrifices it needs and to encourage them to think that their sacrifices will lead to victory. But secondly, our misunderstanding of the truth might be that there might be a more innocent explanation. And that is that it simply takes time to catch up. You know, 20 years ago, perhaps Chinese, you know, economic success was based on an incredibly cheap labor force due to the urbanization of the Chinese population over the, over the preceding 10 or 20 years. And in addition to that, intellectual property theft and the ability to make analog or facsimile goods at a much lower price because of that cheap labor force. It has taken time to understand that the that China has broken out to a certain degree of that model. They've moved up the value chain quite dramatically in certain areas. For instance, how far were they ahead with 5G, for example? How far were they ahead with all kinds of um, uh, business and industrial communications? Um, and it just takes time for people to catch up with that. I mean, what would you say to that? It's, it, it's not a kind of um, a misunderstanding or it, it's not a deliberate creation of a fantasy, 
but it's just a natural reaction to both moving into conflict and the fact it takes time to for our understanding of reality to catch up with reality, especially with a country like China, which is developing so quickly. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you um, in, in a lot here in the sense that, yes, this is a natural reaction, though I would point out that like we're not at war with China. So in, in, in theory, we should be able to have like a, a bit less of that going on to our own detriment, I think, because there's no no people that we have to send to Manchuria to get, you know, shot by Chinese machine guns right now or whatever. Though, uh, obviously, a lot of this is just due to us essentially not catching up. But if you think about it, uh, not catching up to an opponent that is moving too fast for you to keep up with, like that's sort of the, the tragedy of, well, you know, the British Empire in Asia on the eve of World War II. Um, and the, the well, I just, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I, I want to make a point on that because I've just remembered. I, I thought of it earlier on. Um, one of the reasons why the British Empire suffered so catastrophically uh, in the Pacific War was, uh, first of all, you're quite right in saying that it was based on a Singapore strategy, where Singapore would be made into a fortress. And in the event of any war with Japan, the uh, fleet would sally from uh, the Atlantic to uh, the Pacific in Singapore and would be able to take on the Japanese. But of course, there was never the money to do that. Uh, Britain was suffering from the Great Depression and the uh, burdensome cost of World War One, So it was never able to do that. The colonies who had an interest like Australia and Canada, for example, uh, weren't really able to contribute in the way that we perhaps expected them to. And yet we pursued with this strategy in the face of reality suggesting it wasn't possible. But then even once the war had started, rather than withdrawing, Churchill insisted, Winston Churchill insisted on sending HMS Prince of Wales and HMS Repulse with three or four escorts, which were two battleships that were very ill-suited for the type of combat that they were going to face. He insisted on sending them there, despite the fact they were very ill-suited. And of course, it ended in complete disaster. And yet, Winston Churchill was not only an extraordinarily intelligent man, but he was a consummate realist in his foreign policy outlook. So, I mean, I, I mean, perhaps it's possible to, you know, for individuals to make such mistakes and yet still be realist. Yeah, sure. I do think, though, that, like, the problem for Churchill here is that, I mean, he wasn't really playing with a very good hand. So you, you went through some of the reasons. There are even more, but, like, he had a pretty bad hand to play. And it's very hard over time once you become reliant on these, like when you budget, for example, uh, even like for things that aren't necessarily wartime concerns, you see this a lot in politics. Once your hand gets bad enough, you start baking into, baking into your budgeting sort of priorities, assumptions that, oh, well, you know, this next plane or this next hospital that we're building this one won't go over budget. Like if it does, it's going to be a catastrophe. But this time the builders will finish on time. 
They won't charge a single cent more than the asking price, which has you know never happened before. But this time it's going to happen because we couldn't afford like the situation if it didn't happen. So we're just going to hope that a disaster doesn't strike. Once you get reliant on that sort of thinking, and just, like it's like any kind of drug, you build up like a resistance. You have to take more and more and more to get the same effect. And then eventually, you know, you, you, you crash, essentially. And this was kind of the crash for the British Empire of like a, an addiction it had built up to make ends meet over a period of decades. Like there were so many crises that the Brits had to fight all over the world and never enough time, never enough money to do it. So you, you got this sort of intellectual duct tape and you let it do a lot of work. Again, if the Brits assumed, sorry, let's see. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. Okay. someone someone called, so I had to uh, put that away. <laughs> anyway, if if like the Brits had just assumed, like the Japanese, okay, let's assume they're just as competent as us, maybe five percent more competent, maybe five percent less, whatever. Like there wouldn't even be a point to fighting. But saying, okay, sorry, it's over. Uh, we can't really be the British Empire anymore. Like, how was Churchill going to sell that? He couldn't. So you end up in this sort of cul-de-sac. And this is fantastically similar to the American situation right now. And and this is kind of the tragedy here of, of, of uh, like, what Colby is trying to reform in the sense that like the American hand isn't particularly good. It's not really good over a long period of time. And, you know, the university rankings kind of show that hoping for some sort of technological miracle, some wonder waffle, some, you know, 8G technology or whatever. Why do we have a strong reason to hope that that's going to redound to our benefit rather than the Chinese benefit, given, you know, the explosive growth of you know, the Chinese position in university rankings. But again, the math is really bad. And so you end up with this addiction to this sort of, you know, fudging the numbers when you make all of these predictions. Philip Pilkington, and then perhaps, you know, we could uh, invite uh, folks from the audience. I've got a couple of requests, but uh, Philip Pilkington. Yeah, uh, sorry, sorry. Um, I don't have much to add to that. I, I kind of feel the same way. This isn't a, a specific problem, as I said, related to the war or anything like that. The, the situation is getting increasingly tilted in the direction of a kind of emerging multipolar world. I don't think there's a great deal of reversing that. I don't think there's any, like, we don't have a huge say in that, in a sense. And it's just taking place. And it's been speeding up not only since the war, but it's been speeding up since the pandemic, actually. If you look at Chinese trade relationships, for example, with the other uh, would-be BRICS countries or ASEAN countries or whatever, all this stuff is going into overdrive this decade. And it, <laughs> I have the same feeling as Malcolm, that, that we had all these assumptions baked in. I mean, I, I'll say it for my mea culpa, okay? I thought China wasn't going to rise and the world wasn't going to change until about 2050. That's, that was my like internal sense of the world up until 
the pandemic and then the war. And I just saw the data change, like just simple export data and so on. It just changed. And I went, whoa, that's kind of weird. <laughs> and then you have to kind of re-scramble your brain and say, okay, we can't, as Malcolm puts it, budget like that anymore. Like we just can't budget like that. If we budget like that, we'll go broke. And it feels to me like people are having a very, very hard time catching up with that. And as you say, over time, they may, but there may be crucial decisions that are, have to be made this decade. So we need to catch up to it really quick. Uh, that's all I'll say. Well, I suppose that's the, you, you know, that's the point, essentially, that one of the advantages of realism is that it's realistic. For instance, I don't think for one moment that uh, you know, a government with Elbridge Colbury as Secretary of State would have gotten involved in Ukraine. They might have put a bit of diplomatic weight behind Ukraine in order for it to get a decent deal. But what a realist would have done um, is they would have sought a settlement with Russia in Eastern Europe that was lastable, i.e. it would have cost more to break the settlement on either side than it would have to just keep the settlement. So perhaps neither side would have been happy, but they could have all lived with it. And in doing that, they wouldn't have had to pivot to Europe in the way that they have. They wouldn't have had to have run down a great deal of their uh, military and uh, military materiel. Uh, it wouldn't have cost them so much. They could have focused on retooling for, you know, air sea battle in the uh, Western Pacific. And I guess my point would be that we're making our view. Or, or, or we're taking a view based on what we're seeing right now, based on a kind of culmination of... We are fresh from a huge victory.